Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. You are here for yet another Always Be Watching podcast. My name's Dan Barrett. Bringing Sexy back is my co-host, Mr. Christopher Yates. On this week's show, we have so much to talk about. And when I talk about so much, I mean, we have looked at the bottom of the barrel, we've done some scraping, we've found the gold, we're good to go. Folks, this is Always Be Watching. We'll be back right after this little theme song. Folks, this is Always Be Watching. We're here not doing it for the money. We're doing it for the joy of talking about what the heck we've been watching. My name is Dan Barrett, joined by Chris Yates. Sir, how the heck? It's a pleasure to be here, Dan. Um, I don't need any money to live the lifestyle I live. <laughs> Look, while you scratch your back with your ivory back scratcher there, I'm going to explain to people what the premise of this here podcast is. It's maybe your first time. Who knows? Maybe it's not, but if you've sat through the previous 71 episodes of the show, you know what's going on, and you can probably recite word by word what I'm about to say, which is that myself and Chris Yates here, good man, he's a family man. The two of us, we've <laughs> known each other for quite some time, years, decades, all the above. During that time, our entire conversations, the foundations of our friendship is based on the single question, what have you been watching? And then we'll talk about TV. And so we thought, why are we just letting this go out into the ether? Like, you know, no doubt there's like ancestors who are watching on. No doubt there are people like in the afterlife who are just there hanging on to every word that we have to say. But we thought, let's bring in some live people. And so podcasts seem like the natural way to do it. Like, sure, we were thinking about broadcast TV. We thought primetime show, the two of us sitting on a couch, talking about what we've been watching. There's an audience for it. The networks that have been asking us. But we've said no. We're like, guys, you want to pay us money. We want no part of that. We're right here doing on the pods. We believe in the podcast format. Indeed. Because we've got ethics. <laughs> Speak for yourself, Dan. What, let's, let's get cut right to the chase. What have you been watching this week? What have we been watching? Well, can we actually go with what you've been watching? Because I talked earlier oh, about sure. scraping the bottom of the barrel, which isn't quite right. But I do want to maybe just express at the very top of this podcast, yes, there is years worth of a lot of TV shows that people haven't watched and that we've watched and we could talk about those. But we try to like find some of the new stuff, but there's no new stuff anymore. It's all just old stuff. It's all movies. The stupid virus has brought us to this. So Chris, with that in mind... I've watched a lot of movies and I want to talk about those movies, but I feel that integral to the foundation of the show is television. And I think you've got television to talk about. Not only have I got television, I've got new television, Dan, something that was made and something that is new. <laughs> what? Um, this, uh... If this wasn't a podcast and people could see the video of what's going on, they would have seen the hat that I was wearing blow completely off my head, which is either from shock or the fact that I need to get the vents fixed. We're going to be talking about Fear City. New York versus the Mafia. We developed several high-level informants in Gotti's crew through a variety of means. Some were arrested, some we paid a lot. These guys provided a lot of information about who the weak links were in that crew. John's personal pit bull bodyguard was a tough guy, known to be very violent. He would do anything from making him tons of money to killing for him to protecting him. His name was Angelo Ruggiero.
The informants told us he's a big gossip, so they called him Quack Quack. Not to his face. He ate a great deal and he talked a great deal. <laughs> and so he, and he, his mouth was always in motion. So uh, it's interesting that you were mentioning talking about podcasts because this is a television show that definitely could have been a podcast. I was watching a little bit of it just trying to get that sound bite for the pod. And I thought, you know what? There is so little boundary anymore between podcast and Netflix documentary series. Totally. And it works really well. Um, basically, it's a story of in the um, 1980s when uh, Rudy Giuliani, um, who you might know as being Trump's mate. Trump stooge is how I refer to him. Brought down the mafia um, in the 1980s with the help of the FBI and some creative um, uh, investigating and technology it's interesting to watch at this point because there are a few references, of course, to the aforementioned Donald Trump and the Trump Towers and the um, kind of fact that they definitely would have had to be built by the mafia. But it becomes a much broader, um, uh, much broader scandal than that, where basically all the skyscrapers in Manhattan for a 20 year period there or so, or no, for about a five year period were built by um, the mafia who between the sort of five main mafia families um, that were all operating in New York uh, all came together to collude and take over the construction industry, basically. And this story is about the FBI agents who, using uh, wiretap and other kinds of new technology that were quite new at the time, managed to um, basically infiltrate the mafia and... Um, get around things like the fact that nobody would ever testify because people that testify end up sleeping with the fishes, these kind of things. Um, you, you know, there were no witnesses to any of this stuff, even despite the fact that the whole entire uh, city was being, you know, stranglehold, stranglehold by the mafia. So uh, the things like the wiretaps and the um, bugs and all that kind of stuff became vital in bringing them down. So the way that this becomes interesting as a documentary is because we've got access to these tapes so they've got heaps and heaps of recordings, some of which, of course, are muffled and horrible and don't sound very good. But a lot of them are very clear and a lot of them are very clean. And they're even able to sort of show some of the ones that were involved in the direct um, prosecution of these guys and how it all came to be. Uh, and it was basically a, a, a law got tweaked, basically, so that instead of just being able to capture the people that they knew were committing the crimes, if they were able to establish the fact that there was conspiracy going on, then they were able to arrest the whole mafia family. So they start out by just trying to address, uh, by just trying to shut down a couple of the families. But as soon as they realize that there's this much bigger um, corruption happening and it's involving the entire kind of construction industry, then things get really serious and they're able to take down basically all of the all of the um, bosses at the same time. Okay, a couple of questions for you. Sure. First of all, just in terms of like the former structure of this, how many episodes? Three episodes, which is interesting. And what are they like? Hour longs. Yeah, three, yeah, around an hour, not strictly an hour. So it's about, I think it's about two hours, 45 or something altogether. Yeah. I wonder why not a feature documentary? I think a little bit long for a feature documentary. And I think because of the nature of the way that they've put it together, it would be very, I, I mean, I say it would be dry to watching the whole thing, but I watched the whole thing in a row and it was fine. But I think knowing that I could have broken up, you know, jumped out at any point, made it a little bit easier to keep going. Wasn't going to watch the third one. And then of course it started rolling and I figured... <laughs> television was more important than sleep as a decision we make often, Dan. Yeah, look, that's pretty much how I govern my life. I've got one other question, which is, and I don't want to get all poorly walnuts on you, but why <laughs> is it that we can't find positive depictions of Italian-Americans in the entertainment industry? 
look, I know. And there's a lot, there's a lot to be said about that too. And I think what's most interesting about this is that there are, you know, some of the detectives involved and some of the um, people involved on the street, there's a little bit with the guardian angels who you'd remember as the, the, the it sort of starts in the seventies when stuff's really getting bad when, um, you know, when the Bronx is burning and all this terrible stuff's happening and the police and resources are stretched. There's no money in government. So there's a lot more um, opportunity for this organized criminal activity to, to take hold. You know, the FBI was a pretty ragtag operation at that point. They didn't really know what they were doing. They were just kind of using operatives to try and bust these small street guys. Maybe when they'd whack somebody or something like that, they'd get a, they'd get a soldier for murder, but they didn't, they didn't have any way. They didn't have any way to get to the captains or that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, the, the head of the Guardian Angels is an Italian American who had a, that exact same perspective was, um, or more so that, you know, uh, he hated the mafia because of course the mafia had, had terrorized the villages where his family had come from. He'd moved to America to escape the mafia only to, or his grandparents had only to find out that of course the mafia had uh, well and truly taken hold, taken root in America and especially around, um, New York city. It's really uh, obvious that the, you know, the Sopranos, the greatest television show of all time has obviously taken a lot from these stories um, the, uh, and, and just sort of supplanted it t 10 years later or whatever. Um, the way that the families operate, the way that they, and it actually gave me a lot more of an insight into some of the relationships in the Sopranos and how that worked. A lot of that stuff, I didn't really, I guess, understand the dynamics between how the different families work, but this spells it out so clearly. So as just like an explainer to the mafia, it's very interesting, and especially in that position. Um, but one of the things I'd like to talk about, yeah, the, the reason it sort of looks like a, you know, plays like a podcast is because of, you know, we've heard a lot of these kind of documentaries that are very, as podcasts now, that are very heavily reliant on great audio archiving, interviews, sound effects, and that kind of stuff. And it works really well in that way. The, um, the way they've created visuals is with some really excellent, reenactments and I never thought I'd say that because you know usually these reenactments are kind of the worst part about all this stuff but by doing the reenactments in a believable way like with a shaky camera out in the car that would look like maybe where the surveillance would be happening and using the audio from the actual the real audio you sort of get a really interesting sense of um, the time and place and how it all works and you get some great you know mash that up with heaps of great um, stock footage of New York from the 80s and 70s which is all, of course, fantastic and just looks amazing. It, it, is a vi it is very well done visually. The credit sequence is incredible and all that kind of stuff, but it all just adds to the fact that the whole story is being told definitely with the audio and the pictures. I don't think, um, you know, I'm sure you could get just as much out of it by just listening, which is really interesting, I thought. Yeah, look, I've been pretty keen to check this one out. And if you'd given me a couple more days, I probably would have gotten through this one as well. Uh, look, I'm totally in on this. I think it's an incredibly interesting subject matter. And what I'm kind of interested in is, look, like yourself, like most people listening, I've watched so many of these mob dramas over time, but I don't really know the real life stories that well. Like, I kind of feel that a lot of the good stories are a bit pre-me. And so I don't really, like, I've never backtracked and found out about any of the great sort of, you know, New York no. gang mobster scene. And, and, and specifically the New York stuff's really interesting. You know, I've grown up with rap music, so there's always been mentions of Gotti and Gambino and all these characters. And I didn't really understand how they all, set, you know, fit together. So seeing him in that kind of context is really, because that's the whole basis of the, um, of the uh, investigation really is pinning out how they all work together. So that stuff's very well clearly explained. Um, which makes it interesting. And I think it's a really good, you know, it's going to be a really good jumping point to sort of learning more about that stuff and to getting into more of the, um, you know, documentaries about characters like Gotti and 
about some of these other there's a lot of that stuff out there so it'll be really fun to kind of use this as a launch pad i think to go back and check out a bit more of that history no definitely cool i'm definitely going to check that out and it's on netflix, netflix. now streaming with all three episodes all three episodes are on there now yeah and it's a really it's really easy to get into you know like and i think if you look at it as just oh well i'll sit down and watch one it's a you know 45 50 minute commitment and you'll really know whether um they, they get you in there pretty quickly you'll know you'll know whether you're going to want to stick around till the end straight up so yes what's it called fear city New York versus the Mafia on Netflix. Very cool. And just debuted in the last mm, couple of days. That's how up to the minute and on the finger on the pulse I am, Dan. Where do you hear what I got next? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got an idea. Now, we've got our TV taken care of. I've been watching a couple of TV shows, but nothing I'm quite prepared to talk about yet. So I'm doing a rewatch at the moment of Holson Catch Fire, which I think I'll definitely talk about next week. But I'm a little bit shaky on some of the like recollection as to what goes on in the later Oof. seasons. So I think I kind of want to get into some of them before I have the chat where we look back at a show that a lot of people have already sure. seen. But it's very good. It's airing on binge. But we'll get to that in the next couple of weeks. I also want to talk about another show called Foodie Love, which is a show which we're not... Like, I don't know anywhere in Australia that has this, but it's a uh, Spanish language um, TV show from the HBO, the home box office. Have heard of it. Anyway, it's really quite good, but I want to get to the end of the six or eight episode run before I talk about that as well, because I think I just want to understand exactly what it's doing before we have a chat. Sure. But outside of those two shows, which I've watched a lot of, I've also consumed a heck of a lot of movies. I went to the cinemas, the picture house. I saw the first hour of The King of Staten Island. And look, I got there. I knew it was a Judd Apatow film, which means that I'm in for at least three hours of a comedy. And I was there for that. I've seen Apatow films in the past and enjoyed them. The last couple have been a little bit shaky on, but I thought, I'm going to give this one a look. I realized that Pete Davison, he's got no charisma. I don't care for him. I thought maybe this movie would change my mind. It did not. I got about an hour, well, I got about 15 minutes in. I'm like, where are the jokes? Really, there was just nothing which was tickling my fancy at all through it. And I thought, look, I'm sure that give me a few minutes, I'll get to know the characters. And then I hit a half hour point. I'm like, I'm still just not feeling a single thing. And I thought, if I'm still feeling this after an hour, I'm going to walk out. And I hit that hour point. I'm like, look, I promised myself. And wow. I got up and I left. How many movies have you got up and walked out on before? Not that many. A handful. I didn't think so. I usually like stick it out. <laughs> You'll stick out the most terrible garbage. <laughs> look, I will. And yeah, I just couldn't do it with this film. And I think I'm just done with Apatow. Like he's moved from this point of his career where he was interested in telling his own stories and now he sees himself more as a, like a, um, a seasoned professional who can help younger comedians tell their personal stories on screen. But when he does that, like there just seems to be something missing from the Apatow formula. Like it just kind of feels like he's so invested in telling this person's story that he doesn't really do what they used to do in Apatow films, which is a lot of improv on set and let yeah, people yeah. just sort of find their way into the jokes. But I think that is hemming too close to the script. It's just painful. So this I thought was kind of trash. And also Trainwreck, which was the Amy Schumer film from a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Both of yeah, those. Yeah, I didn't like Trainwreck either. Yeah. And I love Amy Schumer. Big Amy Schumer fan. Did not like them. See, I liked Amy Schumer. But then the last season of her TV show wasn't very good. And that came out at the same time as Trainwreck, which I thought was, as the title suggests, a train wreck. And since then, I just can't watch anything from her. And it's just purely, Fair I just enough. had like such a bad uh, concentrated experience of Schumer. It's kind of just sullied the whole thing. Yeah. I recently watched one of those first season episodes and they were fantastic. Like they really held up well. I, I, saw, I just caught a couple by accident and I was like, wow, this was really, really funny. Yeah. Really smart. Really yeah. funny. Yeah. Mm, so anyway, saw the first hour of King of Staten Island and I've been told that it gets better in the second hour. 
but like, come on, you're watching a movie. Time for that. I, I think the idea <laughs> it gets better on the second hour of a three-hour film. Like, that's that's not enough. No, it's definitely not. Like, I can kind of get by with the look. Get through the first episode or something. It's kind of a bit, you know, setting up the table for it. Episodes two and three. That's kind of where it all congeals, and then you're good to go forward. Like that, it's a bit of a pain to get through that first episode. But I'm prepared to do that. But a movie, like, it's yeah. an entire third of the experience done for, which is, yeah, not up to scratch. But anyway, I've watched a whole bunch of other movies. Not the picture theatres, but at, like, always be watching HQ. Uh, so a couple of things I've watched. Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about that I've seen is Almost Famous. Yeah, because once you go to LA, you're going to have friends like crazy, but they're going to be fake friends. You know, they're going to try to corrupt you. You know, and you got an honest face, and they're going to tell you everything. But you cannot make friends with the rock stars. Okay, if you're going to be a true journalist, you know, a rock journalist, first you never get paid much. But you will get free records from the record company. Fucking nothing about you that is controversial, man. God, it's gonna get ugly, man. They're gonna buy you drinks. You're gonna meet girls. They're gonna try to fly you places for free, offer you drugs. And I know it sounds great, but these people are not your friends. You know, these are people who want you to write sanctimonious stories about the genius of rock stars, and they will ruin rock and roll and strangle everything we love about it. You know, because they're trying to buy respectability for a form that is gloriously and righteously dumb. You know, you're smart enough to know that. And the day it ceases to be dumb is the day it ceases to be real, right? And then it just becomes an industry of cool. I I mean, I'm telling you, you're coming along at a very dangerous time for rock and roll. I mean, the war is over. They won. 99% of what passes for rock and roll these days, silence is more compelling. And that's why I think you should just turn around, go back, you know, and be a lawyer or something. So, Chris, almost famous 20 years this year. It's an anniversary year. Have you watched it? I have watched it, but I, I, I saw it 20 years ago. So I have not seen it. I've not revisited it since for the reasons that I thought it was terrible. Okay, so there's a couple of things to, like, take away here. First of all, we were listening to the great Philip Seymour Hoffman, and films definitely got worse when he passed on. Yeah, um, that's a, it, he's, it's a good, um, it's a good role for him. Yeah, like, I think this was the movie which kind of sold me on Philip Seymour Hoffman. I'd seen him in stuff before, but after this one, I'm like, this is like a knockout guy. I've got to pay more attention, and so I did, and it was definitely, it paid off. Yeah, he was the star to emerge from that for sure. Who are some of the other losers in this tragic Look, okay, first of all, I don't care for the way that you framed this. (laughs) I don't care for that at all. So there's maybe two things, like another thing to really take away, which is that when I say I watched this, I didn't watch Almost Famous. I watched the director's cut. Now, to my knowledge, and it's been a while since I've looked this up as a fact, I believe that the cut that we all saw in cinemas, the version that you saw and I saw and all the other tastemakers, I think it only went for (laughs) like about 90 to 100 minutes, like normal movie length. But the thing is that that wasn't really the vision of director Cameron Crowe. His like preferred cut mm. was actually like two hours 20. And the difference, the difference between the version that went out in the cinemas, to the version that I watched over the weekend, like it's incredibly different. So, I mean, it's, it's the yeah, same right. movie, but there's so much more texture and nuance and you're really going on a journey with these people. And it's not really just sort of hitting scene after scene after scene. Like it really congeals. They give characters a bit more time to breathe and 
sort of become a bit more not quite not quite real because it's a movie and movie characters aren't really real they're constructs but you know when you throw yourself into the world of the film suddenly it just comes alive in a way that i just don't think that original cut did and they're very obviously constructs even to the to the point where they're you know they're not it's not a real bands and stuff that um, are being visited, right? It's sort of fake versions of them. Or? Oh, no, no. So the is band that right? you're following all the way through is this band called Stillwater, which is a fictional band. Uh, but essentially yeah. all the other bands that are referenced and have little cameos around a place are real people. Are okay. Real bands. Yeah, I remember that there was the fake band at the middle. Uh, so the real band, so Stillwater are kind of a bit of a composite of like the Allman Brothers and... Um, I think the Eagles are mixed in there a little bit, but, you know, the bits that don't suck. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this was interesting for me. Okay, so this came out in 2000. I was um, a young uh, 20-something, um, you know... Uh, rock critic. To, you know, very, very interested in, in rock and roll and rock and roll movies and stuff. I had very much enjoyed the film Singles, which came out maybe like 90s. 98 no no earlier than that like it was no much earlier than that 94 or something yeah so um just just uh putting into some context here cameron crowe's film singles which came out i want to say like 93 94 so like it was peak sort of seattle scene yeah 92 92 okay so even earlier than i thought uh but then based off the success of singles he was able to make jerry Maguire, which is in that like 96 97 time period right that's the one i was forgetting about yeah. yeah and then based off the massive success of that he was able to do his absolute vanity project which is almost famous because the thing with cameron crowe is that this is a film of his life so he started out as a teenage rock critic and he'd been following around the allman brothers which is kind of why Stillwater or a composite of those guys and pretty much the entire bit like all the beats that you come across through this are more or less things that happen to cameron crowe so the big sort of plot of almost famous is that you got this young rock critic going around and the band are incredibly loose and open around him because he's fairly young and naive and they don't really think about him as being an actual like observer who's going to do anything with his work and so when he ends up filing a story with rolling stone the band are like you know the red back line like uh, quotes that they'd given him and they're like oh no we never said that and just completely sink this guy and it's kind of about him like suddenly going home with his tail between his legs and the rock stars realizing they've kind of screwed over this little kid and everyone kind of grows up and matures over the whole sort of incident. But this is stuff that happens. A lot of that happening in Cameron Crowe film. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. Like he's a very sentimental, very um, hard on a sleeve filmmaker. And if you're not willing to buy into that, like do not bother with any of his movies. But I think the early era part of his career, which kind of ends with Almost Famous, like after this, like don't bother with any Cameron Crowe stuff after that because it just kind of feels like this was his apex. He achieved all that he could as a filmmaker with this. And then after this, he just couldn't quite recapture the magic again. But I do think that singles, Jerry Maguire followed by this, like I think that just three incredible bits of Hollywood filmmaking. And, you know, it's hard to really do what he was doing during his time period because it is so earnest. Of course, Cameron Crowe came, uh, his first film was uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Well, Am I right Fast Times that? is based off the book that he wrote, which I think he also did the screenplay, but directed by Amy Heckling. Oh, Amy Heckling, that's right. Who went on to do heaps of great other great stuff as well. But you can definitely, you, you could definitely pick up on his same sense of, um, you know, his style is well and truly there in the script for... Um, Fast Times at Richmond High. Oh, look, absolutely. And so that was him as a teenage... Well, no, he was in his, I think, early 20s at that point and went back to high school because he still looked kind of young. 
And it was kind of him reporting on what teenagers are like because he never really quite had that experience himself. Oh, Cameron Crowe's first directing movie was Say Anything. Oh, yeah. Of course, with um, the... Um, yeah, that was like... John Cusack in his boombox. Yeah, many great rock and rolls are seen in there as well. So, yes, you're right. You could run it. You could do a nice little run of his early films for sure. I'll stop at Almost Famous. But, yeah, I strongly recommend check out Almost Famous. But when you do it, director's cut or nothing. Yeah, yeah, good advice. I just don't think it's worth watching the other one. The thing is that often when you find Almost playing, almost Famous playing on TV or streaming anywhere, it's not the director's cut. Yeah, so you got to go and look for it. Yeah, the words to look for is sometimes it's called Untitled, which is the name of the DVD that came out. And is also the name of Led Zeppelin's fourth album, which was a very purposeful uh, bit of connection there. Uh, sometimes they call it the bootleg cut or director's cut. Ah, interesting. Uh, a couple of other films I watched. Yes, t- tell me about some more films you watched. Almost Famous. Uh, so that was the sort of breakout for uh, Patrick Fisher, who was the young guy in it. But also most of the film's marketing was based around Kate Hudson. Anyway, I realized I've never seen another Kate Hudson movie. And it's mostly because she did a whole bunch of terrible rom-coms and stuff I just had no interest in whatsoever. So I watched Almost Famous and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to watch another Kate Hudson movie. So I watched a little <laughs> film called Something Borrowed, which this is a movie with Kate Hudson in a supporting role with Jennifer Goodwin playing the main character in it. Uh, it's essentially a thing about four friends. Uh, you got Jennifer Goodwin, who people might remember from Big Love, and she was in Once Upon a Time, the sort of fantasy um, TV drama series. Uh, she's got co-stars including Kate Hudson, some guy that I've never really noticed that went on to anything else. I'm sure he did. IMDb told me he did, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, but then also playing the fourth uh, lead in it is one John Krasinski, a.k.a. Jim from The Office. Oh, my God. Yes. How could you not lead with that? Well, you were saving it as a surprise, and I appreciate it. Well, because he's not the lead, but, you know, as the fourth, we can definitely sort of slide him in there. Anyway, it's about four friends. Each of them have kind of been in love with each other at one point or dated each other, and they've reached their early 30s now, and it's all kind of coming to a peak, and uh, one of the, like two of them are getting married, and it's not really quite working out because he's sleeping with Jennifer Goodwin, and... It's a whole thing. Anyway, the film's terrible, and I really wish I hadn't. <laughs> well, well, it was nice to see a bit of uh, Jim from The Office in another role anyway, I'm sure. Absolutely. Anyway, I'm going to wind up quickly with just two films. Uh, one also keeping with Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, the film which is also celebrating its 20th anniversary this year, stays in Maine. You doing a play? Local drama group. Northern Books. No, it hasn't come in yet. As soon as it does. You too, Marge. A small town, I suppose. You have to make your own fun. Everybody makes their own fun. If you don't make it yourself, it ain't fun. It's entertainment. See my point? Northern Books. What can I do for you? I I need a typewriter. We got him. North... No, Henry James was the novelist. Frank James was a criminal. Yep, you came to the right place. Jesse James was the brother of the novelist. That's right. That's all right, Susie. See you tomorrow, Susie. Okay. I want to rent this one. Why don't you buy it? Only 40 bucks. I had one, but they lost it. You buy this typewriter, I'll get it all spruced up for you, good as new. Better than new, because it has some history. Other one in history, too. I wrote my play on it. Oh my god! I'm just reading it. This looks incredible. I, I vaguely remember it. Sorry, but I vaguely remember it. But I can't put my finger on it. So, Chris, State in Maine. This is David Mamet doing a comedy. 
David Mamet, not really known for doing comedies, but here we are. Uh, look, this is, I'm going to quietly say it, one of my favorite movies of all time. This is one of those films. Look, this is a film that nobody's seen. Like, it's just kind of quietly came and went to cinemas. It's not necessarily seen as one of Dave Mamet's sort of best or most memorable. And you occasionally come across people who know it because in my Twitter bio, like if anyone's ever checked it out, you'll see I've got the catchphrase from this movie, Go You Huskies. And every so often I'll just get a tweet from someone who stumbled across my bio and sees that and, you know, just suddenly just tweets at me, Go You Huskies. And I just think that's incredible. Uh, the Go You Huskies reference is to the fact that this is a film set in a small, like, upstate New York kind of a town. And so it's a small town where there's, like, small town memories and history that just kind of permeates everything. In the 70s, supposedly, there had been the uh, high school, um, like, gymnasium that had burned down under mysterious circumstances, along with a number of places around town, which is also sort of burnt down. Their local sports team is the Waterford Huskies, so all the locals always tell each other, go you Huskies, as part of just a bit of a casual language. Yeah. So there's lots of recurring gags that take place as a result of the Absolutely. history of the town. None of it's really explained to the audience in any sort of clear way, but it's just kind of a very textured movie, and I really appreciate that. Uh, much like every other day of Matt film, like all the language is very particular, like you heard in that clip then, like people don't talk like people. And I'm totally there for it with this film. But the cast of it, you just heard there, uh, the aforementioned Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, there was Rebecca Pigeon, who is Dave Mamet's wife and appears in a whole bunch of his movies. You've got, mm. and look, this is maybe, I think, probably the uh, best uh, role that he's had. Um, Alec Baldwin playing a yeah, very right. stuck-up actor. Well, he's not really stuck-up, but he's a very full-of-himself actor. It's probably the polite way of saying it. But he's also an actor who's maybe got a bit of a penchant for teenage girls. And this is maybe where the film is a little bit clunky by 2020 standards, in that it's very much played as a joke in a way that I just don't think a lot of audiences are necessarily there for right now. Uh, playing the teenage girl, because inevitably that has to happen like within the movie, um, is star of uh, 10 Things I Hate About You, Julia Stiles. In this, I don't think she's a teenager while she shot this movie, and she definitely doesn't seem like a teenager. So that's the one thing that kind of feels a little bit hinky about it all. Uh, but then you've just got like all these great character actors in there as well. Uh, Charles Durning's in there. Uh, who else? Uh, you've got... Jonathan Katz. Jonathan Katz uh, playing a sort of fairly small role in it, but very memorable. Uh, you've got Laura Silverman being Sarah Silverman's sister. David Paymer. Uh, there's one actor in there. He doesn't have a line but you see him step out of a train and hand some golf clubs to a judge character. Uh, one John Krasinski from TV's The Office plays Jim. Can, I can see on Wikipedia, it looks like he's been added in a different font. Um, this, this seems to have happened <laughs> sometime recently and it's, and it's uh, written as an uncredited role. So I can't imagine, this wasn't the, the breakthrough that Krasinski uh, was destined for. No, but certainly a very memorable role in that he's on screen for about a second and a half. <laughs> he's been slugging away for a while there. William H. Macy's in this. So was this already, did you know this was your one of your favourite movies before your rewatch or is this a new thing that you've realised how much you love it? This is a long going, like lifelong, well lifelong, you know, suddenly since I saw it in about 2001. Yeah, very interesting. It's, it's been a quiet obsession of mine. Um, Alec Baldwin, of course, in the much more famous David Mamet film, Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross. Is that right? Yes. yes. Uh, so he's obviously, um, yeah. yeah, he's obviously a, a fan of um, Alec Baldwin's work. I mean, most of these actors have all been in Mamet films. Like they're all, it's very much his troupe. Yeah, that's what I thought. I was trying to do the cross-referencing there. 
But anyway, I just want to highlight it. I think it's a great little comedy. It's very charming. It's uh, There's not like great laugh out loud sort of gags. Although there are a few funny things where you definitely chortle in a way you don't expect to. But it's just like one of those quiet comedies that I think have lots of clever lines in it. And you'll certainly be thinking about the lines for years to come. Fantastic. I'm, I'm all there for it. I'm going to watch it. Worth a look. Final thing I'm going to talk about is a film that got launched on Netflix about two weeks ago. It's called Desperados. This is a very traditional Hollywood comedy style film. You've got a group of characters. Well, you've got one lead character. She is a young woman who is unlucky in love and professionally. She just can't land a boyfriend. You know, big sort of rom-com sort of issues. But instead of being a rom-com in a style of, say, like a Something Borrowed, starring the aforementioned Kate Hudson, this is a little bit more sort of a new bridemaid style of comedy. Uh, so the main actress is uh, Nassim Pedrad, who people may know from New Girl. Uh, also in her is Anna Camp, who has been in a whole bunch of sitcoms over the last couple of years. I think the idea of Anna Camp is more funny than the actual reality of Anna Camp. And like, she's perfectly <laughs> fine on screen. Like, there's nothing wrong with her. But like, she never really seems to deliver the lines in the way that I think the script had originally intended. And there's lots of things that are kind of funny that just kind of fall flat. But she's not necessarily bad in it. Like, she doesn't deliver them badly. I can't work out what it is. Like, she's a bit of a uh, comedy vacuum in a way. I know, it just feels harsh. Sure. It's like, she's good. It's weird. Uh, Lamorne Morris, definitely from The New Girl. Uh, Robbie Amell, who people would know from Chris's favorite show of 2020, Upload. Oh, uh, yeah. I've got to watch a second episode of Upload. I think I only watched one. <laughs> I thought you'd watch the whole thing by now. Shocking. No, I forgot forgot all about it. Jeez, Chris. Gotta get back to it. Heather Graham's in it in a very memorable role. Uh, like, there's lots of fun characters in it, but basically she's a woman unlucky in love. She comes across the perfect guy, which is Robbie Amell's character. He, like, takes her out on a date. Uh, they have a great time. She ends up sleeping with him, and then she gets ghosted the next day. And then the next day goes by, and then the next day, and she sent a whole bunch of texts, not hearing a thing. So her and her friends get together, send a very drunken email to him, uh, just criticize everything about him from, you know, his personal grooming to his manhood, you know, <laughs> everything you could possibly drunkenly put into an email gets put into it. They hit the send button. And of course, as her friends are hitting the send button, she's taking a phone call from him who's in a Mexican hospital because he's been in a coma for a couple of days. He'd been knocked over mm. in a car accident. And so now the group have to go to Mexico in order to retrieve his phone so they can delete their email before, you know, she loses love and life. Of course, along the way, she ends up bumping into the guy who she had a bad blind date with recently, played by Lamorne Morris. He's obviously going to be the most perfect man in the world for her, but she doesn't quite see that just yet. As the film goes on, you know, it all plays out as you expect. But the thing is, sometimes you want these movies to play out as you expect. And I had a great time with this, even though it's not a particularly great movie. Lamorne Morris is easily the best thing in the film. Nassim Pedraj, who I think is usually incredibly charming in movies, and I, well, TV shows usually that I've seen her in, I think she's generally great. But I'll say this, she's done the one thing that I think is just career-destroying for any formally funny person who goes through this on screen. She's gotten some sort of work done on her face. Like, I think she's got, like, injections into her uh, lips or yeah, something. Right. And there's just something, if you get work done, suddenly there's something about your face that stops being funny. I just found so much of the film, I was sitting there watching her going, what have you done? Like, you're an amazing looking lady, and yet you've gone and done this to yourself, and I just couldn't not focus on it. it was rough. Hopefully it's temporary. Uh, well, maybe. I mean, lip things, I guess they sort of come and go. 
Like there's a couple of actors and I certainly appreciate that you're in Hollywood, you see yourself on a big screen, like every small bit of your face, like this big pimple I've got on my face right now. Uh, anytime that you see sort of like any flaw in your like physical appearance, like I'm sure it like just weighs on you dramatically. And then as careers go on, particularly for actresses in Hollywood, like roles start to dry up and you start being offered not the like attractive, young, fun person, but you start getting like mother roles and that sort of thing. There's a lot of pressure to start getting work done. And I totally understand why people fall into this trap, but they do it. And then suddenly they just lose that thing that actually makes them sparkle on screen. Because there's a lot of good actors and actresses who work on screen, but not all of them are necessarily fun stars on screen. Like there's something special about people. Yeah. And I think they just lose it when they start getting that work done. It definitely reduces a lot of the expression, which can be vital to comedy, especially. Hey, um, I really enjoyed your rapid fire movie uh, reviews there. Can I do a couple? Jaws 3, pretty good. Not as good as Jaws 2, which isn't as good as Jaws 1. Dennis Quaid is fantastic. Um, he plays so Schneider's son. He plays Schneider's oldest yeah. son, yes. Um, and then Jaws 4. Um, Sorry, did you watch Jaws 3 Michael in Kane. 3D as intended? No, I didn't, but it still looks amazing because all the 3D stuff looks like crazy uh, experimental video art these days, <laughs> uh, which is great. Yeah. Uh, especially when it's a, a, a bitten off limb. Highly recommended. Jaws the Revenge, probably not as good as Jaws 3, being Jaws 4. Um, still very good. Michael Caine. No, it's not very good, but it was, I'm glad I watched it. Michael Caine was very funny. Um, uh, it, the shark is even more hilarious. And weirdly, Dan, I've watched all the Jaws movies this last over the last two weeks or so. Only Jaws 4 did I get a shark nightmare. <laughs> the most ridiculous of all. How strange is that? I don't know. It kind of makes sense. You do see a lot more of the big rubber shark in it. And there was and it was a big rubber shark ch chasing me in my dreams. So there you go. So, That's all I wanted to do. So you've just watched all four Jaws movies. What do you do now? Do you move on to other shark-based films? Like, are you going to be watching the Sharknados? Are you going to be watching uh, The Meg? Nah. Are you going to try to no, try? No, I was invested... I was invested in the Brody family and now that's over. So I just got to move on to something else. Well, would you be more interested in following up other Peter Benchley, like sea time stories? So Peter Benchley, who wrote the mm. like, would you watch Maybe. Peter Benchley's Not The really. Beast, the TV miniseries from the mid to late nineties? <laughs> no, I think I'll pass on that. I think I'm going to move on to something fresh and it's going to be a shock to you next week what it is. And I'm, I'm sure I'll think of something by then. Okay. Can I make two recommendations here, Chris? Yep. Okay, first of all, and you already know what they are because I've been telling you this offline or online, I guess really as the case has been. I strongly recommend Under the Silver Lake, which is streaming now on SBS On Demand. It is totally a you movie. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing mm -hmm. that I think people definitely need to check out is a film that's launched on Netflix Australia in the last couple of days. I know it was on Hulu in the US, but might also be on Netflix now. And it's a film called Sorry to Bother You. The less you know about this movie, the better. But just to understand, it's about a guy who goes to work for a uh, telemarketing company, African-American guy. He realized he's a lot more successful if he puts on a white voice. And so the film plays around a lot in terms of expectation when it comes to race uh, for both positive and negative um, effect. There's a lot more going on in the film than that, but I just want to leave you with that as no, the no, entry I've heard, point. I've heard very good things about this, but I don't know too much about it. So yeah, yeah. I'm very keen to check that out. Definitely give that one a look. It is one of the wildest films you'll ever see. Excellent. Let's get out of here. Chris, it has been always yeah, been watching. We've watched, we've talked, we've always. My name's Dan Barrett. You've been Chris Yates still. Yes. Yep, still still Chris. Uh, people can find us on the web, alwaysbewatching.com. You can find podcasts where the web exists. 
Folks, this has been the podcast. We'll be back next week. Affirmative. Another one in the can.